Well, these guys didn't ask my permission. They just shot him. 1,400 metres, clean kill. And the bomber stopped. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to I could quite never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt like the top She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Graham Connolly is a former officer of the 2nd Commando Regiment. I spoke with him last year about his various post-military endeavours in the Season 2 bonus episode, Warrior You, with Bram Connolly. Today's episode is my conversation with this Special Forces veteran about his time in the Army, including his deployments overseas, and what he learned along the way. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Bram Connolly. Bram, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thanks, Alex. Good to talk to you again. Tell me about your early life, Bram. Uh, I grew up in South Australia. I spent majority of, you know, Christmases and Easter and those sort of things down in the York Peninsula, playing armies with my brother and friends and stuff like that. Went to Banksia Park High School and then, you know, really those first sort of 16 years just a bit of a vanilla years and then joined the army. Was there a step in between that though? What first drew you to sign the dotted line? I left home and went and worked on a sheep station in Western Australia for the six months between the end of year 11 and when I was old enough to actually join the military. Uh, and I saw that at the time of just sort of escaping and being an adult for a bit and doing my own thing. But actually what it ended up being was a really good experience that sort of hardened me up and made me a lot more resilient when it came to going through Kapuka and Singleton and the like for infantry. What drew you specifically to the cattle farm? Well, I mean, you don't see it these days, kids these days. <laughs> Jeez, sound old. You're getting there. Yeah, but there was no internet, obviously. There was no mobile phones. And if you wanted a job, you know, it was in the newspaper. And I just remember walking past a window of a shop somewhere in the city, somewhere in that sphere of influence where we used to ride our bikes and that sort of stuff. And there was a like a recruitment agency there. The sign in the window just said that this station was looking for, you know, um, jackaroos. And it sounded, it was in Western Australia, which already sounded to me to be somewhere exotic, more exotic than Adelaide. And it was on the Nullarbor. And, you know, I got the phone number and rang them up and then went home and told my parents what I'd done. And then, and then they talked to the owners and then it was all sort of, there was a whole lot of adult conversation that obviously took place. And the next thing you know, I was on a Greyhound bus and 12 hours later I was... Um, out in the Nullarbor. So when is the first time you consciously think that a career in the military might be something for you? Well, I think it was probably around the same time that Platoon came out on TV or on the movies and Tour of Duty. So it was definitely a Hollywood sort of um, You're looking notion. at John C. McGinley and going, yeah, I want to be him. There you go. I remember, uh, you know, we used to reenact some of the battles that were in Tour of Duty. And I think there was other shows out too, like Airwolf. So I thought all helicopters were silent, things like that. So you joined the army at 17. 
What are the reactions of your parents? I don't think they minded. I think it was that obvious that I wanted to do it from around year eight that they're probably just relieved to have me out of the house, to be honest. Give this young man some structure. Well, not so much that, just that I'd been pursuing it for ages. I'd always talked about it. You know, the weekends were dressing up in the next door neighbor's Vietnam era gear that he had given his sons and we were off, you know, shooting each other with slingshots. And it was a really great sort of introduction to, you know, to being outside. So it was something that I knew I wanted to do. Was there someone like that neighbour or anyone else around about to be a military influence on you to talk or share stories? Yeah, there is actually. There's a, a friend of my dad's. My dad was a station officer in the fire brigade. And I guess a lot of his era guys were Vietnam veterans. And there was a, there was a couple of them that I remember, but one in particular, Roger Watkins, and he was a, a Vietnam veteran. He used to talk to us, you know, at family barbecues and stuff like that about Vietnam. And he was quite open about his experiences as opposed to some of them. You know, he wasn't a Nasho either. He'd actually joined up to join the military, I'm, I'm fairly sure. He'd take us out and show us how to navigate by the stars and stuff like that. So for me, that was a real you know, delight really as a kid, having that sort of male influence talking about the military. Talk me through those first few weeks of training. I remember, like everyone does, getting my head shaved I remember that shock of capture being yelled at off the bus, being separated from your bags. I can remember that. I mean, I know a lot more about it now, obviously, because I understand why they do all that stuff and imposing discipline to teach someone self-discipline. But yeah, it was a real shock. And I had not given myself any ability to withdraw. So although it was a shock, it was just something I had to endure. And I kept saying to myself as I went through it that, you know, this isn't the real army and this will end. Probably good advice there for anyone who's going to Kapuka. Yeah. But you had the foresight there to see a goal and work towards it, work towards realising that goal. I don't think it was as structured as that. I think it was survival, um, not to give up. I just knew that if I rang up home and said I'm coming home or if I told the instructors that I wanted to withdraw, that I wouldn't get another crack at it. So it was, in some sense, it was just failure wasn't an option because I had nothing to go back to. I'd told everyone what I was going to do. And then it was a matter of carrying through with it. So by that mentality, which do you think is more effective, carrot or stick? I mean, I know what's more effective and it's you know, definitely the carrot approach, but you need a stick in order to train people to be disciplined. And then the more powerful thing, I was going to say motivator, but that's not really my bag, as you know. The more powerful thing is in consistent application. Motivation probably won't get you through Kapuka, but consistently getting up every day, trying to find a positive attitude, consistently doing the things that you're told, applying yourself consistently is more powerful than motivation. Well, you survived Kapuka and then you're on to Singleton. Tell me about that. So in Singleton, I was in a core enlisted platoon that was going to 3rd Battalion. I wasn't enlisted to go into that platoon, but I was fortunate enough that they moved my intake forward with a couple of other guys and attached us to those guys. So that was special, really. Those guys were all going to the parachute battalion. They had a real good esprit de corps. So my experience of Singleton was primarily with that core enlisted platoon. And then we parted ways at the end of that. And I went to the first battalion. There was a little bit of ribbing of us during the training about, you know, going out to one hour and one hour of this, because all the instructors were third battalion as well. But I've worked out in years, you know, years later that third battalion and first battalion back then were just different. Not one was better than the other. They were just different. And I think there was a really strong mutual appreciation for just how good both those battalions were. And although they had a like sly cracks at each other, even back then, you know, you know that they were realistically envious of each other in some ways. Do you have a specific career goal or endpoint in the army in mind at this point, or you're just finding yourself and taking the journey as it comes? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I tell people now, 
If you're going to join the army, join it to get out. So from the day you get in, think about the day you're going to get out so that you can set yourself up, whether that's doing a degree, going to TAFE part-time or doing some sort of study part-time or something in the military. But for me, it wasn't a case of that. For me, it was, I'm just joining the army. And this was before the days of you had a specialist from your Opportunities Unlimited that they do through Defence Force recruiting. This was, you joined the army and then at the end of Kapuka, they tell you where you're going. So for me, it was, I want to go infantry, I want to go infantry. No, this week I want to go artillery. No, this week I want to go to CAV. Then I was going to be an air defender. you know. And then finally they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to go infantry. And that's what happened. So the other aspect to that story is that when I was polishing my boots at the very end of Kapuka, so we were only a few weeks out, not even, maybe a week out from March out. So this is 1991. And our corporal came in at the time and he said, okay, all of you guys that want to go onto the new pension system can stop polishing your boots and come down and, and sign the forms down in the you know, gymnasium or wherever it was where they were giving the brief. And any of you idiots that want to stay on the, the old system, just, you know, just stay here and polish your boots. Now, I needed to finish my boots, okay, because they were crap. At the same time, I also thought to myself, well, if there's an old system, why would they change it? It doesn't make any sense. And I wasn't smart enough either to see the economics behind the new system, which was the MSBS, and the old system, which was DFRDB. And so maybe I took a lazy option. I don't know. But I know now that I'm on a pension for life. So you have to have done 20 years to do that. So a lot of times in my career, I thought about getting out, but I always had that you know, carrot you know, of that pension after 20 years. And then I guess once that contract was fulfilled and I could take the pension, I guess the next opportunity for me to, to leave the army, I sort of took it. I just thought, oh, I'm going to try something else. Yeah, so those boots are worth a fair bit of money, I'd say. You get your first overseas deployment when you're 19. Mm. Talk me through Somalia. I went over on the advance party. We flew over on a C-130, and the first time I'd been out of Australia was on that C-130. Flew through to, I think it was, oh, I can't even remember exactly where, on Western Australia, on the coast there somewhere. And then we went to the Cocos Islands and then Diego Garcia. You know, these are all cultural, you know, shocks to me, really. And then we land from Diego Garcia in Mogadishu. <laughs> so that was my first trip overseas. And we went and we stayed in tents next to the Moroccans and the Moroccans were all going to the toilet in the corner of their tent. So that was another cultural shock. And then there was Somalia proper, the operation. We received the Qantas aircraft flying into Mogadishu and all these guys getting off with their slouch hats on and no weapons, you know, their backpacks on. And then they, well, they got shot at, you know, from Mogadishu. And so Australia, and they didn't even have any weapons then. So I remember that was a bit of a shock to everyone. Can you talk through a bit first of the context of what you're doing there? I mean, banditry and warlords are rife in the area. You're there coordinating with NGOs trying to help maintain the situation. What's happening there from your experience on the ground? Oh, Alex, I think you're giving me way too much credit as a 19-year-old for knowing what's going on. I'm, I'm there as part of a section. So you know. your briefing wasn't that comprehensive? Oh, absolutely would have been. <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Hurley would have made no bones about exactly who was doing what, but I was you know, 19. I, was, I thought I was going over as a Ford Scout to protect the guys around me. That's all I was going there for, really. I knew we were going there because because there was a humanitarian crisis and people were starving to death. I knew that. And I'd seen the footage on TV of the of the Americans, you know, coming ashore. So I had an idea, but I didn't really have a, an understanding of the absolute, you know, breadth of the problem with regards to people, you know, dying everywhere from starvation. It was apocalyptic, really. Well, then, since you weren't too attuned to the geopolitical situation around you, what was happening in your day-to-day -day on the ground there? Yeah, so I had a really good platoon 
great section commander and we were just going through task after task after task. So that might have been securing a food drop. It might have been doing a vehicle patrol. It might have been going out to a village somewhere to do a cordon and search. It was really good. It was Operations 101. And it was a really good, uh, I guess, a good induction into the way that operations can be conducted by by Australians. And in some ways, it was like a defence aid to the civil community, but done in Somalia. And every now and again, there was bandits coming in there and having a crack at the Australians, which was, you know, which obviously history will show that that didn't work out so well for them. But we left there before, you know, what is now famous, the Battle of Mogadishu with the Americans. We were gone. We were in one of the poorest areas in Somalia where we were as well. So we had a different type of person that we were dealing with. We were dealing with people who were dying, they were starving, and the warlords had a lot of influence over them, but even the warlords weren't going out there that often because of the the nature of the place. It was so remote. I know you're 19, so you're young and you're focused on the experience for you and the wider context isn't as pressing, but this is the first time Australia's deployed a battalion since Vietnam. It's, you know, there's a lot happening here. And I can imagine that you're being a professional soldier, doing your job, you're getting to do what you've trained to do for real and quite quickly into your career that there's this bigger stuff happening around you. That's absolutely true. And I was definitely aware that that was occurring. While I was aware of it, it didn't really impact me. I was just doing what I'd been trained to do and enjoying carrying a rifle and, and being the Ford Scout. There's a certain degree of skill involved in being a Ford Scout, which I sort of prided myself on learning. And, you know, with the other with the other Scout, we're taking turns at being number one or number two. And, and you know, my existence was being as good at that job as I could possibly be. Tell me more about that job. Quite often, our platoon would lead the company, so you'd be in the first person in the whole company, walking on a bearing cross-country for kilometre after kilometre. Sometimes you'd be on the flank of that company, and you'd be you know, the first person on the flanking platoon, at least right out onto the side of the company. So everything in front of you could be an enemy. So you need to be attuned to the environment. You have to understand yourself when you're getting tired to swap over with the other guy. You, know, you need to be doing everything just a little bit better, because if you don't, you know, an enemy could get the jump on you or your section or platoon. It was a great job. I really loved it. And it was a, if I look back on my career, it's one of those jobs that probably defined the path that I took later on because it, that led to, you know, reconnaissance platoon and that led to becoming a sniper, that led to special forces and that led to being good enough at navigating to be able to pass that selection and so on and so forth, you know. We'll come back to leadership later, but during that deployment, is there a leader that stands out to you as someone that made an impact to your section commander or... Yeah, so my section commander was good, Wayne Prosser. He was a great section commander. I really liked my platoon commander, Vince Cray. I thought he, and more so as I've gotten older and in leadership positions myself, realised what a tough job that would have been for him. So he wouldn't have been much older than me, really, maybe three or four years older, but he was in charge of the platoon. You know, as you say, in a, in a platoon that was deployed for the first time since, you know, in a battalion setting since Vietnam. I mean, you've got to remember there was Cambodia. There was things happening with Cambodia prior to, Somalia. So there was people who were deployed before us. We'd been breaking the long pace, but this is up yeah. on a scale. Yeah, it was a battalion commitment, which is a, which is significant. You know, Vince did a great job and he, he was a very good leader. He was humble and he was very good at being able to build that fan base that's required as a, as a leader. So people wanted to be like him. People wanted to emulate him. He led through participative leadership, showing people that he could do what they could do. And you know, I think that was a, yeah, he was very good. You get back home after Somalia and a very formative first deployment for you. And it's not long till after that that you set your eyes to special forces. 
Yeah, that's right. I had a crack the year after at, well, I had a crack, uh, attempted the SASR selection course. And I guess some of that is down to believing our own hype. You know, we're getting around now, first guys wearing double ASMs in however long, think you can do anything. And so I just applied, didn't really bother training, just applied for it and went over there and got a little bit of a shock. Had a bit of a humiliating sort of wake up call, not only as a soldier, but as a, as a man. How do you think failure builds resilience? It didn't build resilience for me at that point. All it did was kick me in the ass. And it was things that went on after that. Like I remember being on a tracking course not long after that and guys asking me how I'd done. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, had gotten through to wherever I'd said I'd gotten through. I can't even remember now. But it, it wasn't true. I basically lied. And then someone that was there called me out on it. I guess that was one of those experiences where I, was, I said to him, yeah, you're right. I didn't get that far into it, about like the third day into it, and then withdrew my own request. And I look back on my performance on that selection course now, and I realize that, first of all, well, I don't go into anything underdone anymore. And secondly, you can't change the course of history by a few words people are going to know. And you can't, you know, the other thing that I learned, I'm sure people have heard me say this if they're familiar with, with anything that I've done, is that you can't get fat by eating humble pie. So I just owned it. I just said, yeah, you're right. I didn't do that. And I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and I let you down by saying that and I let myself down by making out. So let's move on. And that's what I did. To put that into context, though, I've spoken with a few SAS veterans and the statistic can often be something like, you know, 120, 140 guys first go into that hangar bay and strip down and the selection begins with them. And you may finish with 100 plus of those not making the cut just to get to the reinforcement cycle stage. Mm. So it's a massive attrition rate deliberately designed to be that way. Yeah, that's right, Alex. But a selection course. And remember, I, was, I went from failing that to being the officer in charge of that course in 2007. So in between those years, I realized that an SAS Carter course or a commando selection training cycle is an individual thing. It doesn't matter that 120 people have rocked up and only five get through or 20 get through or 50 get through or none get through. Every single person there is on their own journey in that time. So the attrition rate's neither here nor there. If 120 people rocked up and 120 people could get through it, then 120 people would get through it. But they're all on different journeys. And what's happening around them is of no consequence. The courses are of no real consequence. It's a competition with yourself, not with the man next to you. In some aspects, it's absolutely all about you teamwork comes into it and there's points where you're being assessed on your trainability, your environmental resilience, your cognitive ability. That all comes into it. If they had 120 spots and 120 people passed, they'd take 120 people. That's the other thing. Sometimes there's only so many vacancies they can take. And you know, you can be there on a, on a particularly healthy year and you might have been just good enough, but you won't get in. So it really is dependent on a lot of factors. You make that attempt, you eat the humble pie, and then in 1997, you give something similar a crack. I mean, I didn't actively seek it. I was in the 4th Battalion. I'd gone from Townsville down to the 4th Battalion. And that was a tropical relief program from being, I think it was from having something similar to dengue fever or Ross River fever, one of those sort of things that's recurring. can't remember exactly what it is. It's not, wasn't cool though. I ended up down in, down Holsworthy in the new battalion. And then they changed roles to a commando unit. And we had, the next thing I know, we're standing there on the parade ground being told that in four weeks, five weeks time, whatever it was, that we were going to attempt the first selection course, you know, selection and training cycle for commando. So that was, and I was in the newly raised Charlie company then, which was absolutely gutted on that course, on those first courses. 
you get through that selection course, but there's not that many years between for RAR activating the bracket commando element. There's not that many years between that and you attempting SAS. If you say it's mostly a competition or a trial against yourself, what's changed for you to not get through it the first time, but then get through this other one? 1994. 1997 doesn't sound like that much, but it's a lot when you're, you know, going from 20 years old to, you know, 23, 24. You know, I'd filled out more. I was stronger. I was fitter. And, you know, now as a section commander. For the commando reinforcement cycle, I was there with my section, which is a, a lot different than going through it by yourself. So now you've got all these other guys around you as well that are being looked at and you've got to support those guys. And, and I've always done really well on things when, when people around me are starting to drop. You want to say motivational, but it's not so much motivational as it's one of those things where surely it doesn't hurt that much. Or just take one more step or do one more thing or wake up one more day, whatever it could be. It's only pain. Well, it changed. My outlook had changed. And I think that I did hit that saying that, you know, this time I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to pretend and I wasn't going to fake it. I was going to actually attempt it. So what happens next for you now that you're a commando? You know, there's a lot of training to be done. We finished all of the different skill sets, insertion courses and specialty courses. So it was a long, long year, really it was a long year. And then at the end of that year, end of 1997, we had a, it was actually probably around, well, it would have been closer to September. We had a, um, you know, section competition and I finished second in the section competition. The section I was in finished second and the winner got a gold Sokost commendation, I'm fairly sure. And then the loser, so the second place, so me, I uh, was given a six-month long look to Royal Marines. So, yeah, I mean, go figure. I think he might have had the choice of either or, but I'll never know. But, yeah, I found myself over with the Royal Marines for what was meant to be six months, and it went for most of the year, so most of 97 through to 98. Tell me about that experience. Uh, it was great. So I was at the Royal Marines Commando Training Centre at Limpston, one of the jobs I was there as platoon staff, so helped them run the platoons through the training course. And then I was lucky enough to also get on their survival course and to do some of their mountain leader training as well. Yeah, I had a really thoroughly great time, a good bunch of guys, yeah, really tough guys too. And they gave me a different understanding of the military and how it works. So some of that stuff I brought back to the unit. Met a really great guy while I was there. I was I was in the reconnaissance team for a young officer's exercise up in Sky, Isle of Sky. And I met this one of the officers there. He ended up being the company commander, Kilo Company, in 2007 in Afghanistan. And I was a special ops liaison officer attached to his company. And we'd met back in, you know, back 10 years prior in Scotland in the Isle of Skye. And then 10 years later, I was attached to him as a, as a special operations liaison officer between, you know, 4-hour commando and 4-2 commando killer company. When you get back down under, what's next for you? And there was a few years there of just constant training. Primarily, we were developing things like parachute load follow capability for the company, being able to jump boats out of aircraft at night over the horizon, that sort of thing. So it was good. It was good honest commando fun. It's a lot of hard work being awesome. It's uh, it's the stuff that you dream about doing when you're a kid. And and I was really privileged to have done as many, you know, night jumps into water <laughs> as I did and not so many land jumps, so which was great. Yeah, and there was a couple of instances where well, we jumped into the Spencer Golf a couple of times. We jumped off of the other side of Magnetic Island outside of visual distance and bobbed up and down in the water at two in the morning for a few hours waiting to be picked up. And that took longer than we all expected. And that was quite confronting. 
Yeah, and then that all sort of led on to our rotation replacing the 1st Battalion in Timor in 2001 where we, we reinforced and we stopped for a year doing the Special Forces gig and became uh, what was, uh, I guess, a line infantry battalion but with capabilities inside it that you wouldn't usually find with a line infantry battalion. And how's Timor in your experience? Timor was great. It was a really good bush trip. You know, I was in the reconnaissance platoon. I was a, a team commander in recon platoon. And a lot of what I did was five to 10 day patrols and observation posts and sneaking around, cammed up, taking five minutes to open your fruit in your lap, that sort of stuff. It was really great soldiering. I loved it. And we did it. You know, we were there for a fair chunk of time. And a lot of that time was spent out in the field sneaking around. It was, it was great. I loved it. You've also been, by this point, a section commander for a number of years, so you're starting to become a budding young leader. Well, yeah, and and I was promoted to sergeant in the field in 2001 by the CO. So I was then a, a patrol commander as a as a sergeant, which is what you, know, you usually are in, in special forces anyway. I was still sort of playing around with the idea of what leadership meant to me and, and how to be an effective leader, and I wasn't particularly good at it. I was good at the army stuff. The leadership stuff was difficult because you have micro leaders in a section and in a team, and when you're younger, you don't know how to deal with those micro leaders effectively, and that's something that I learned to do over the coming years, but I wasn't particularly good at it then, and sometimes they, they ran roughshod over me, and I wasn't really sure how to deal with it. I wanted to know how to do it, but I couldn't do it. And back on the domestic front, we were starting to split up our special forces. So SAS, based out of Perth, they have the West Coast of Australia, and commandos are given the East Coast and are called Tag East. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, well, it's important to understand the catalyst for that, which was September 11. I mean, all of our lives changed, especially in 4RR Commando. We had just gotten back from a patrol and we were in the tents watching. We watched the second plane hit the tower. Not weeks later, we were told that we would be raising Tactical Assault Group East and that the recon platoon would form the backbone of the guys doing the very first course. It's a false assumption to say that, that SASR has responsibility for the West Coast and us for the East Coast. It's us, I'm not part of them anymore. But the 4th Battalion you know, Commando had responsibility after they were trained and after they had met, you know, met all the requirements of government to have domestic counterterrorism and SASR offshore recovery. And that's remained... But they're interoperable and even more so now, whereas, you know, you can, and I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, they have some great mutually supporting effects and mutually supporting abilities between the two units. So, you know, don't think that one's one and one's the other. So Command has responsibility for that stuff and wherever it sits inside So Command, it'll, it'll depend on a lot of factors. But yeah, well, I found myself on that first, you know, I was on the first commando course and now I found myself on the first tactical assault course in, in Perth and, you know, exacting like, I guess uh, I had some some skeletons in my closet as well with Perth, you know, going over there. So for me, it was really a chance for me to make amends in my own mind. And that is the hardest course they run, the most exacting course they run, and the course that they have the most people who are deemed, you know, not to be trainable in the future. So for me, it was a matter of, I tried to be the grey man. I'm not very good at that. I tried to be the grey man and just get through it, but I found that you had to try and excel at it. And the attrition rate was actually pretty high. A lot of people try to be the grey man, but I think a lot of people don't quite succeed at pulling that off. No. Being the grey man, it's an art because you have to do just enough where people aren't taking notice of you, but you also have to help other people enough that you don't seem to be going jack on them and not part of the support. So it's a real fine line. It's a, I'd love to see someone study it one day, but uh, yeah, we 
it's very difficult for me to do because I'm opinionated and will voice my opinions, especially when hangry, you know, or tired. Hangry being hungry and angry, obviously. Which is a common occurrence in the army. It's common in my family. You should see my son. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, and, and it is common. In, you know, and part of the stuff we'll get onto later, I'm sure, about mental toughness and resilience is understanding yourself and understanding the emotional triggers. And one of the emotional triggers I have is if I'm hungry and you put something to me that I think stupid, you're going to get told. So what is some of the training you're doing in the tactical assault course that's different to all the commando stuff you've been doing? We had done CQB on the commando reinforcement cycle. We had done- Close quarter. Close quarter battle. We'd done a, a type of that, but we hadn't done it at Perth in their facilities with their instructors. They expected excellence. They don't. They didn't settle for um, mediocre, and you had to come up to that standard. And it was a a real, you know, crawl, walk, run approach. But they would, you know, one minute you had to use your non-master hand as a safe on the safety catch, and the next minute you had to use your thumb. And if you used your non-master hand, that was now a safety breach because that wasn't what you were taught. So you had to go. You had to be able to move with the pace of the training. And if you weren't trainable, then you were sent back to the unit. Being able to shoot in a darkened environment, multi-level, multi-team, people all around you, lots of stimulus going on. Being able to have situational awareness, which is one of the biggest things that they're looking for. You know, there's only so many people that are capable of doing that. Some people just genetically can't do that stuff. I couldn't genetically be an NBL player. I'm not tall enough. I mean, I'd make a lousy point guard. So some people just genetically don't have situational awareness and they find that out. One of the roles you find yourself in after the course is being a sniper. Talk to me about that. I was one of the only sergeants that passed the initial course, one of three, I think. And they needed a sergeant supervisor for the sniper platoon. And I was probably the worst assaulter <laughs> that got through. And so, and with my sort of recon background, I was picked to do the sniper course, which I did, which meant I stayed on when everyone else left. I stayed on with a lot of the soldiers and we, and we did the SASR sniper course, which was think the CQB course is hard that next course is a completely different level of hardship you're lying around out in the sand dunes there in the heat through summer trying to not be found while shooting at targets and things like that so it was a really tough course but I, I passed that then I passed the supervisors straight after that and then I did the helicopter assault you know shooting courses and then was a supervisor and then an aerial support officer as well so it was course after course after course and then I went back to four-hour commando as the Sierra 1-1, which is basically the lead tactical planner for the sniper platoon. Yeah, so then for the next couple of years, my sole job was being the lead tactical planner for the sniper platoon inside the national counterterrorism team. Did you find the role and responsibility of that, particularly the sniping in general, did you find that gelled well with you and your personality? Yeah, I loved it. Highly technical, lots of cool equipment, you know, camera stuff, bits and pieces that you get to play with, you know, remote observation systems, different types of scopes and, you know, sighting systems, all this night vision gear, suppressed weapons, different types of ammunition. You could just absolutely nerd out on all that stuff to the point where you're cryoing rounds to certain temperatures to then see bullet drop compensation over how many meters. So I was just just geeking out and I loved it. But there was guys in the platoon that were a lot better at it than I was, which was, you know, it was like an arms race to see who could have the most knowledge on sniping. It was a creative role. And now I look back on it, you know, the plans were creative and, you know, the, the training for the guys was creative. And now that I look back on it after everything I've done, it makes sense to me that I enjoyed that role because of just how creative it was and how you, it's almost a choose your own adventure while you're doing it. 
But the confidence also adds that personal journey of development. Yeah, and the confidence comes from being good at your trade. You know, as the Sierra One One, you arguably have to have either the most knowledge or have humility to go to someone and say, "Hey, I'm not really sure how to do this. Can you run this particular thing?" So, in that regards, I guess that was an area of my leadership which was being developed, sort of on the side without really knowing it. When do you first get deployed to the Middle East? Oh, I didn't go for for a long time. I went back to Timor again as a special ops liaison officer in 2007, I think that was. Yeah, as the conduit between special forces and Brigadier Slater's staff, who was at the time in charge of 3rd Brigade. I really liked him. I mean, he had a lot of nicknames. One of them was Brigadier Slater, the SF hater. But I really found him to be you know, a very professional general and thoroughly enjoyed working for his staff. And the role was, you know, special operations liaison officer role was a really independent role. So it's one of those things where you have you know, a lot of responsibility and a lot of latitude to do the work. So I did that. And obviously I had changed over by then. I was now a captain. And then I'd gone through that while still in the tactical assault group. I was going to say, so you make that transition, which we'll come and talk to in a moment, to officer before you actually hit the Middle East. Okay. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about that because it's quite rare. I don't think we can technically say unique, but it's definitely rare to go from NCO. You start at the bottom of the pile, you work your way up to senior NCO, and then you become a captain. How did yeah. that come about? I'd finished subject one for warrant officer. I had also completed uh, subject two for warrant officer. And on my course report, Dean Franklin at the time had written that my career should be managed or that I, and then, you know, with the utmost care and blah, blah, blah. But he also came to me and personally said, look, I think you would benefit from, you know, either going to RMC or changing over to be an officer. And then I looked around at the other warrant officers that I was competing against. And I felt that the army was in safe hands with those guys in regards to where they were heading. And I did feel like perhaps I could contribute more by doing something else. So I went back to work. I saw my officer in command of the tactical assault group and said, hey, this is, the, this is my idea. What do you think? And he said, fine, if you think you want to do it, let's put the paperwork in. I put the paperwork in and then, and then I sought out hundreds of mentors officers, people who'd done it before, people who'd changed over, people who'd just been through RMC, wanted to know every single thing about that selection board and what I was going to face. And then I walked into that selection board and it's like I'd done it a hundred times before. I knew exactly what to say, what to do, who to talk to, how to act. Some of it was fake, some of it wasn't. And then I was told at the end of the day, oh, by the way, you were successful. And I remember at the time, look, I was looking out the window in Randwick. Yeah. And she said, oh, you know, congratulations, you're, you're successful. And I, I did a double take and I went, what? What do you mean? Like expecting that she'd said I hadn't passed. It was probably the proudest I'd ever been in the military, to be fair. And I knew my world had completely changed because I was no longer going to be Sergeant Connolly, soon to be Warrant Officer Connolly. It was Captain Connolly. You know, you go from all of your friends who are sergeants all now really suspicious of you because you're an officer and all of your officer mates think that you're just some Dargan sergeant. So it was a real it was a real challenge that first couple of years as a captain. Well, I bet because you've changed from stripes to pips, but that doesn't transform you or make you a new person or a new leader. You still have to draw upon the same inner character to lead these guys and in that high profile role. Yeah. And I assume Dean Franklin got something right when he said I should consider being an officer. He obviously saw that I'd had enough of that makeup to be successful. And I think that I felt like I was successful and I, and I was I know I was successful because for many years, officers would ask me what class I was in at RMC. And that would happen more often than not. And then when I'd explain to them, and sometimes I wouldn't even divulge it unless I was asked. But when they would ask that question, I'd say, well, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm an ASWOC, which means I've changed over from you know, either sergeant or warrant officer. And also, it's important to note that I was commissioned as a general service officer, not as a special service officer. So there was no restrictions on what I could do in the army as an officer. 
which is another probably testament to to my previous career and what the officer board thought I would end up doing. What they thought I would end up doing, I have no idea, but yeah, they put some faith in me. For the civilian listener, can you explain in an infantry battalion or in the TAG context or a commando context what the difference in leadership role and responsibility is from sergeant and warrant officer to that of a captain? Yeah, so a corporal in a, in a leadership position is directly responsible for the welfare of the guys in his section, the sergeant for the administration and welfare for the guys in the platoon. And the platoon commander then generally you know, in charge of transferring strategic operational guidance from the officers above him into tactical plans and orders for the guys that are his subordinates. In special forces, a captain is generally a platoon commander first. So in an infantry battalion, he's a company to IC, so he's second in charge of the company. I also did the full six years as a captain. So my first job was as the operations officer for one commando company in Mossman, then the special ops liaison officer over in Timor, and then I was the officer in charge of selection at the Special Forces Training Centre for a year. We reinvigorated the Special Forces Direct Recruiting Scheme that year. I wrote the new, I think it was the AD109, which is the selection for service in Special Forces document that everyone had to read before they went in there. And, you know, for my troubles was awarded the one of the commendations from what was General Highmarsh then. So that was quite good. And then the following year, I find myself as an operations officer for Charlie Company before we deployed on Rotation 7 into Afghanistan. Talk me through that rotation into Afghanistan. You're finally deploying to the Middle East. Yeah, so Rotation 7, you know, I've got to be real careful here because there's so many people who are still serving that were there. So I can't use their names, obviously. And Rotation 7 was particularly successful, I guess. The guys did a great job. Both the platoon commanders were awarded Distinguished Service Medals, the OC with the Distinguished Service Cross. One of the key tasks that we performed was doing disrupt operations around the Kajaki area when they were having the turbines moved to the dam. And the guys did an amazing job under really difficult conditions. As luck would have it, and I feel very bad for him, but our company sergeant major hurt his back when an IED went off in a creek line and uh, in front of him. He wasn't injured in, in any other way other than that, but he wasn't able to deploy again because I was um, you know, qualified as a a warrant officer as well, I guess. I found myself deploying out in the field with the company in his position, filling his role. So in that position on a car on the 50 cow or in the passenger's seat behind a Mag 58, because we were still in, back then we were still in cut down special reconnaissance vehicles, so Land Rovers, and also fulfilling his role in the field. So going around and looking after the welfare and along with the executive officer overseeing all the administration and resupplies and all that sort of stuff. So and I, was, I say fortunate because before that, I was the operations officer inside a headquarters with a small staff managing the fight through radios. And I say fortunate because when I went back as a platoon commander, a lot of the areas I'd already driven through and knew. So it gave me a really good grounding prior to going over there as a platoon commander. It's fair to say, though, you've been in the military a long time. You are very professional and you will do the tasks you are given. But the opportunity to go out there on the ground with the troops... I'm sure you loved doing that and executing that role because you've deployed to Somalia, you've deployed to Timor, but Afghanistan's a whole different ball game in asymmetric warfare. It's a real hot zone for you. Talk me through some of those times you were out with the men. Oh, it scared the crap out of me, if I'm fair, right at the start. To be ripped out of a, you know, safe, cushy headquarters, really, and then thrown out on the ground with the guys is actually is actually pretty confronting. Well, yeah, you've been in the army for over a decade. You've been in special forces for a while now, but this is actually a new environment for you. Yeah, and if you don't mentally set yourself up for that challenge, you, you go over there with other expectations. And I think that's why sometimes people get PTSD because they're not 
prepared for what's about to happen or what's about to come. And it would have been really easy for me to have, you know, succumbed to something like that if I hadn't been able to quickly adjust my frame of reference. And the guys were great, brilliant. And Alpha Company back then was, you know, they, they really were warriors. And also they just looked at me as just another commando. So it was refreshing in that regard. You know, I'll never forget walking through the green belt at night on NVG, going after targets and hundred something guys creeping through there and not making a sound. It was just the most amazing thing. The way that the the OC, he was such a skillful tactician and all of his platoon commanders, you know, both of his platoon commanders as well as his team commanders, they always knew exactly what they were doing. So it was a really, for me, it was just an incredible experience to see what good looks like so that when I was a platoon commander and one of those platoon commanders, by the way, was the executive officer of the follow-on company I was in and he was younger than me and I had put him through selection and now I wanted to be like him and emulate him and that's a special thing to me and all of those guys who I worked with remain good friends to this day. For most people listening to this podcast the date 2nd September 2008 will be well known to them as the day that Mark Donaldson performed an heroic series of actions that earned him the Victoria Cross for Australia first recipient in the modern era. Do you have an alternative perspective on that day Bram? Oh well I mean I was there when I say I was there I was in Afghanistan. I was the operations officer for Alpha Company and those guys were about to do, that evening were about to do a roll through a village cordon search if you want or a targeting operation. They were just about to go over the line of departure when it all kicked off and I couldn't get hold of my commanding officer. So I made the decision to radio the OC and tell him that he'd been told to stop. And the reason I did that is because I knew that all of the aeronautical medical evacuation platforms and other helicopters were being diverted to pick up injured people as well as there was other things going in in the battle space as well with the Brits and um, the USSF. And I just thought, I can't afford a commando on sort of my watch to get shot or hit an ID or something, and then us not have a way of getting that guy out. And when I couldn't get hold of the commanding officer, I just decided to take it upon myself and said that, oh, orders have come down for you to stop. And then I explained to the OC later on that I'd made that decision myself, and he was quite fine with that days to come probably wasn't at the time because they'd geared themselves up ready to go into a fight but there's no point fighting if you can't get guys out oh you're resource managing right and i remember the two command centers the two special ops command center you know the commando one and the sasr one are linked by a door and so i remember them you know i remember what was going on over there and i remember how much of a panic they were in and and i walked in there when things were a little bit quieter and offered my assistance or anyone else's assistance to the point i think where we made some coffee and brought them over things like that just little token things because you can't really help you know you're just getting in the way i've heard you tell a story i think on the warrior you podcast before where you're fired upon you hit the deck but not everyone else does around you. Yeah, so one of our first hit outs, Yankee Platoon 2010, the year before that, they'd been the land platoon in the counterterrorism role. So you know, in that job, you stand and deliver, you put your plate towards the target and get amongst it. You can't do that in the green belt in Afghanistan. And yet that's the instinctive reaction that I guess we had. I didn't. I had the run down, crawl, observe, aim, fire reaction that most infantiers would have. And I remember looking up at guys standing there shooting and yeah, there was some soul searching done after that. It wasn't everyone, but there was a few individuals, enough individuals that it was a bit silly. But yeah, we got that out of our system pretty quick. You get trained up to have all these skills. You're doing close quarter battle, you're doing sniper training, you're doing domestic counterterrorism stuff, but you have to compartmentalize all that and access the correct skill set instinctively when you're confronted with the situation. Part of the reason why we choose people who are trainable so that you can mix and match and go with you know that golf bag approach of skills. 
been out there on the ground with your men, how do you reflect on your leadership style in the field? The pinnacle of my leadership abilities at that point, and I think a lot of those guys feel like they might have had two platoon sergeants, or maybe they don't. I worked really well with my platoon sergeant, which is Paul Cale, complemented each other really well. And I think that at that point, I'd understood that leadership is all about getting other people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And for me, it's just about selling the plan to the guys well enough that they want to do it. And if that means you know being able to reinforce the fact that, hey, you will survive this because I've got the medic in this location and the casualty collection point is here and fire support will look like this. If I just sell it enough to the guys, then they want to get out there and get amongst it. It's just a matter of making sure that they see a professional looking back at them, giving orders, because at the end of the day, you're putting them in harm's way. So, you know, you've got to be on top of your game as a platoon commander in combat, and you have to be able to show the guys that not only am I competent, I'm thinking of every second, third order effect. The enemy might get a vote, but whatever the enemy votes, I've got something to counter that. And that was the case for us. Nearly everything that was thrown at us, I had preempted and had something to counter it with, or it didn't happen because we stopped it halfway through. And I think that's what the guys look for in a good commander is someone who's agile enough to change, but you have to have those plans you know, in the back of your mind really fast. Was there ever a situation where that agility to change, adapt, was that tested? Pushed. 100%. I was found wanting on a couple of occasions. One of them was 100% my fault, complete accountability. I deployed the guys looking for speed over survivability, and we left certain bits of equipment behind, which I can't really talk about here, but we, we left some equipment behind that we shouldn't have on my call. And then we were actively targeted by a bomber who was setting off remote controlled IEDs. And when you hear an explosion, when you hear an explosion and then you don't hear KIA or you don't hear WIA come back over the radio, that's confusing. It's like, well, what was that? And then you hear another one and then the penny drops. Oh, we're in the shit. And then you look around and you realize you're in an abandoned village that you'd, you'd let yourself get sucked into because you know, you've been winning all these times and this is just another time you're winning and suddenly, guess what? You're not winning. You're in a long, drawn-out, complex ambush. The only reason we survived that day, while this guy was setting off IEDs all around us, because you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to move, you don't know where to hide. Do I go to that corner? Is there a bomb in that corner? If I move two feet to my left, will he detonate something else? If I stand here, will I get shot by a sniper? The only reason that we survived that day, and I was absolutely flat-footed and could not make a decision, the only reason we survived was that I was smart enough with being able to set out Overwatch. And remember, my background's a sniper, so I don't go anywhere without one foot on the ground. And I had my snipers up in an Overwatch position when we moved into this position, into this abandoned bloody village. And the snipers saw someone sitting up in the rocks and they could see him doing something with his hands that was synchronizing with these blasts going off. And they, they put two and two together and, you know, and I've always said to the guys, if you have to ask for my permission to shoot someone, you don't have permission. Well, these guys didn't ask my permission. They just shot him. 1,400 meters, clean kill. And the bomb stopped. The second order effect of that day was we had to Kazavak people, not because they were physically injured, but because they were mentally injured. They were shell-shocked. One guy in particular was absolutely rattled to the point where he was, couldn't stop throwing up. He was, was one of my enablers as well. He was a brilliant soldier. He wasn't, wasn't one of the commandos. He was another element. And, um, you know, it was very hard for me to lose that guy out of the field. But he came back. He was fine after a few days. 
because he'd put a frame of reference to it. Plus, I think I apologized. That's always a good, if you make a mistake as a commander, God, you got to own it. Got to go up to everyone and say, hey, look, that wouldn't happen if I'd done this, this, and this. And give people the opportunity to come back to you and say, hey, that's all right. Actually, I would have done the same thing. Or yeah, you're a cockhead. You know, whatever they have to say. You learned that lesson early on, own your mistakes. Yeah, I learned it when I had lied about SAS selection. Was that day in the village the time you learned the most? No, there's so many other times. Well, I didn't learn the most. It was a time that I felt that I wasn't in charge for the first time. It was that I didn't have an answer. Every other time I had an answer. Which is an important lesson that you have to deal with situations where you can't pre-plan and you don't have an answer. How do you answer the unanswerable? Yeah. I mean, we're storytellers, right? Humans are storytellers. So hopefully you've got a frame of reference and people listening to this you know, maybe a young platoon commander's listening to this and he's like, oh, okay, so if something like that happens, what am I going to do if that happens? Now they've gone through it in their mind's eye and now they have a frame of reference for being attacked like that. It wasn't pretty. And I mean, it could have been a lot worse. If they'd had weapons in, in an Overwatch position shooting at us, it would have been a lot worse. I think the only reason they didn't is they weren't able to react fast enough to get people up in those hills. Are there any other particular striking memories from your times in Afghanistan you wish to share? Oh, I think, you know, the battle is about Calais was probably the main test of my, not my abilities, because I didn't have really that much to do with it. To be fair, the team commanders, yeah, to give you a brief understanding of it, we did a helicopter assault two o'clock in the afternoon, as you do, into a high altitude area where we couldn't take the whole commando force with us because of the heat and the altitude. So we whittled the numbers down. I think it ended up being something like 16 and then a few other additions. And then we got into a gunfight with, we know there is at least 13 Taliban because we killed 13 of them, but there was a whole heap of other guys there as well. And they were all armed with PKMs. Um, And we had 556 M4s. So it was a real stoush. And it was one of those days where we landed in the wrong spots. We were isolated. Every team had to fight not only to get out of the isolated position, they had to fight into the buildings that they were being suppressed from. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst women and children in those buildings. And it was a real testament to the training that the guys had had, the team commanders especially, to win that day. So, and for me, you know, I got off that helicopter when we first got there and I remember being absolutely overwhelmed by stimulus. You know, I had a feed from an F-15 above me. I had company headquarters in one ear. I had my team commanders in the other ear. I had my signaler talking to me, multiple channels. I had my JTAC talking to aircraft and calling aircraft in. Then I had some guy shooting at me. We bomb burst the four of us out of this aircraft as it took off under fire. And then I, I just remember looking up, getting shot at and not knowing really whether to look at the feed from the aircraft, whether to talk to someone on the radio or to shoot back. And I decided to shoot back. So I did, I shot back. And then whatever happened then happened. I don't dwell on that stuff. It just is what it is. The four of us fought through this orchard and came across a whole lot of abandoned flip-flops and prayer mats and stuff. So those guys have been really caught out. They were on the run through this orchard. Now we'd been overstretched and I was no longer in command. It was all over the place. We were losing for an hour with three prior ones and medical evacuations and the like to we won the day and then got out of there. It was a really tough, hard slog. I think there was five gallantry awards in total for that day, which I've been told is the most since in a single action since Vietnam. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I have been told that and I'd be interested to hear if that is the case. Speaking of awards for gallantry in combat, you're not just Major Bram Connolly retired, you're Major Bram Connolly DSM, Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership in Combat. How did that come about? 
it was based on that rotation and the investiture citation talks about me running between positions under fire during Gumbad and also for my leadership during Zabat Clay. But as I said before, Zabat Clay just happened. My leadership was neither here nor there. It was just did what platoon commanders do and used a radio and called assets in and out. It was the team commanders really that won that day. Gumbad, I'll take a little bit of credit because I was running around getting shot at. It's a real honour to be given that award and sits me amongst peers that have been awarded similar things for similar actions. So it's something that I think that my sons will understand more in the future and will probably be proud of. How many times do you deploy to Afghanistan before you discharge from the army? Well, that was my last deployment as Yankee Alpha. And then, I mean, there'd been other times I'd gone there with other to do other things, but not on a rotation. And then the year after we got back, I became the international engagement officer. And I think I didn't really understand how great that job was, traveling around the world, setting up exercises for the army because I was just burnt out. I actually think I, I, think I completed, because I'd been promoted to major as well in Afghanistan that year in 2010. And then I came back, I was the international engagement officer and I just attended my last promotion course for major. And I, I was awarded student of merit for that majors course. And I looked at it, the student of merit, and realized that I was going to be doing another year in the headquarters. I wasn't even going to be a company commander at that stage. And I was just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to do something else. I just didn't have it in me anymore to be to be in the army. I don't know why. I just And I think that sometimes you just, I probably left right at the, the height of what I was going to do in the military. And if I had stuck around, I would have stuck around, taken the space for someone else, or worse still, just becoming one of those tired old, you know, majors sitting somewhere with no real aspirations to do anything. Whereas now I'm struggling author, running a podcast, and <laughs> I'm doing all this creative stuff and working for a mining company as their head of leadership. So I've had a great experience since. Yeah. You discharged from the military in 2012, and we've spoken previously on this podcast in the season two bonus episode, Warrior You with Bram Connolly, about all your various creative ventures that you've mentioned, author, podcast, the Warrior You program, and more. How did you find the transition out of the forces and what skills from that are you taking into your new life today? I'm not sure about the transition. Bram Connolly as a you know, major in special forces to who I am now, Bram 2.0. I'm still not sure what that is. All I know is that you know I can't let my military service define me forever and I need to have a, a persona and a personality that is true to myself moving forwards. The leadership stuff is the leadership stuff. It's just, it's an amazing experience. Military leadership, you get to see what good looks like and you get to take that into the corporate or private sector. If you go in there humble, bide your time, you'll be able to show prospective employers the real benefit of military leadership. It's an amazing thing. On the flip side of that, if you go in there thinking that you're going to make everyone into the army, then you're going to be sorely mistaken. Do you see yourself as a great leader or do you just know what great leadership looks like? I know what great leadership looks like. I think I am a good leader in that I'm empathetic and generally know how to motivate people to do you know, what I want them to do because they want to do it, which is the you know, secret to leadership. How you do that is through emotional intelligence. I'm always getting better at that. And I think that that's one of the key things people have to take away is emotional intelligence allows you to be a better, more effective leader. I've heard you talk on this before. What do you think on mental health versus mental fitness? Oh, it's just something that I've raised a few times because I like the sound of it more. If you let yourself get unhealthy, then you get fat, then you need to go and sort yourself out and get healthy. It's like mental fitness is if you let yourself become unfit mentally, you know, whether that's of your own volition or something that's happened to you, then you need to seek ways to be fit again. I'm just trying to reframe it because 
I think there's a stigma around mental health. Whereas I think if we talk about you know mental fitness and get amongst it and fight to be mentally fit and seek the help that they need, I've seen people with PTSD be cured. The first step of that is to say, you know, not on my watch. For anyone listening to our chat today, Bram, whether they're in the military, aspiring, or none of the above, they're just someone listening to this podcast and have stumbled across this conversation with you. What lesson do you want them to take away from hearing about your life? Oh, you know, you know what I'm going to say, and that is that I think that there is a risk to being average. I think that if you're average and you know you're average at stuff, then there is a risk to that. The risk is greatness. So you can apply yourself more. You can become consistent. You can become the hardest worker in any room and achieve amazing things. You know, you just can't settle for your own mediocrity. You can't fool people about things that you haven't done if you haven't done them, clearly. So from there on in, you've got to think like a champion, be consistent, be the hardest worker in any room. And, and the risk of being average is that one day you'll achieve something great. It's just a matter of applying yourself over and over again. Bram Connolly, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for speaking with me. Thanks, Alex. If you enjoyed this conversation with Bram Connolly, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast app. Learn more about Bram's books, podcast, and the rest in last year's bonus episode. And find him on social media by searching Bram Connolly. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. And our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>